0: Ben, and Thank you all for being here today. Uh, we are in part two of a two-part series called More Money, More Problems. And you know what? That's more than just a saying. It is a reality. The more that you have, and sometimes we Americans, we think, okay, the more the better, the more stuff we have, the more possessions we have, the better. But that's not always the case. In fact, a lot of times the opposite is true. The more that we have, the more complications there can be. And so if you weren't here last week, let me recap for you what we covered last Sunday. We talked about Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. There's this guy named Edgar that we meet. It's a weird name, but he, uh, he says this prayer to God. He says two things. This is Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from, far from me. That's great. It's a wonderful prayer, right? We can all pray that part of the prayer. Keep lies, keep deceit, keep all that stuff far from me. Then he goes on. Give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. And so last week we talked about the fact that there are temptations at both ends of the spectrum with the very poor and with the very rich, right? Down here at the very poor, a very poor person might be tempted to steal from somebody else. And a person who is very poor might have these heart issues related to jealousy or coveting or anger or frustration or bitterness, something in that category. And that can cause damage to a person's relationship with God and damage to a person's relationship with other people. That sense of being so poor. And here's the thing, even if a person isn't genuinely poor but feels poor, there can be all sorts of heart mess that happens when a person feels that way. On the other end of the financial spectrum, for those who are very wealthy, what does the Scripture say? Well, those who are wealthy, they can disown God, and they feel like, well, I don't need God, I've got my stuff, I've got my money, I've got my possessions, I've got security, and that's... And so, people who have too much can fall into that category of not really depending on God, not really needing God. And here's the reality the more money you have, the more stuff you can buy, and the more stuff that you have, the more you can be led away from God. It's just the reality. The more stuff you have, the more stuff that needs to be taken care of, the more time you have to spend taking care of it, the more money you have to spend taking care of the stuff that you already spent money on. Woo! My goodness gracious. Now, there's an old saying, perhaps you've heard it you don't need money to sin but it helps. Have you heard that saying? I just made it up a few days ago. You don't need money to sin, but it helps. Put that on a bumper sticker. Just confuse people driving behind you. What is that? Are they advocating for sin? What? You don't need money to sin, but it helps. You can sin down here on this end. Sure, there's all kinds of sin that can happen in poverty, like just heart issues and jealousy and stealing. That's certainly a sin, but there's all sorts of other sins that you can afford. You can afford more sins down here. And some of these things that we buy, some of these things that we do with our money can lead us, actively lead us away from our God. And so that's what we covered last week. And we'll continue on today. So you may have noticed you've got some notes in your bulletin this morning. How about that, right? Some fill in the blank notes. Some of you in this room really like those fill in the blank notes. I don't do them all that often. In fact, I think maybe there's just one of you who really likes it. But okay, so there's one of you who likes it, all right? The rest of you, this is a great habit to develop, right? To take notes, to be listening for God, because God might actually say something to you this morning. Isn't that wild to show up in a worship service and to hear from God? Let's be listening for God today. You can take some notes. If you don't want to fill in the blanks, you can be that way. Jot down something that God speaks to you, all right? This isn't a mandatory thing. This isn't school, but then maybe you'll have some fun with this. If you took a look at that note sheet, you may have realized that we're going to talk, be talking about tithing today. And we are. That is part of what we're talking about. But we're also talking about saving. Okay. You heard the scripture read this morning. There's some stuff about saving that we really need to talk about here. Um, tithing, let me explain what tithing is. If you're new to that terminology, tithing is this practice of giving 10% back to God. 10%, tithe is a 10%. And so I learned about the tithe when I was growing up in a church setting, um, and I started tithing almost immediately, if not immediately, as soon as I started working. I'm trying to think back. It was a long time ago when I got my first job. I think I was 13 or so. But I think right around that first paycheck I ever got, I started tithing. Let me tell you why I was tithing. It had nothing to do with the Bible. (laughs) It had everything to do with me following the example of some other, well, some guys that I was looking up to in the church, all right? I grew up in a church setting, and so there were a few individuals that I looked up to, a few guys that were further along the way. These were family men. They all had a few things in common, these guys, right? Is that how you are? Do you look up to other people and kind of say, I want to be like that person, that person? That's always been me. I look up to people and identify things about them that I want to emulate. Like when I'm a big boy, when I grow up, I want to be like that guy or that guy or that guy, right? Right? And so these few guys, they all had a few things in common. They were all family men. They were all dads. A couple of them were granddads. They all took care of their families, at least from an outsider's perspective. It looked like they were good to their families. Again, from an outsider's perspective, it seemed like they knew how to handle their finances. They could afford to take care of their families and all this. Again, from an outsider's perspective, it seems like some of these guys really lived below their means, right? Right? As, as opposed to living above your means, which so many Americans try to do. We buy things we can't afford. We go into massive amount of debt. But these guys all had that in common. They lived below their means. And another thing all these guys had in common was they tithed. And so I said, okay, I want to be like these guys, and so I'm going to do this thing. And for so many of us in this room, if you're a Christian, for so many of us, that's how this whole living out Christianity thing starts. We follow somebody else's example, Right? Before you pick up a Bible and start reading it for yourself, you're just emulating what you've seen other Christians do, right? You become new to the faith. You say, okay, I'm part of this thing now. What is this about? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? And you start emulating what other Christians have done. Not even on a conscious level. It's just something you start to do. You adapt their behaviors. You follow the examples of others. Now, that's great. That's wonderful. As long as the example that you're following is living out biblical truths, then you're in good shape. Of course, if the example that you're following is not living out biblical principles and biblical truths, then you're in trouble, right? So what happens at some point along the way, here's what's supposed to happen in our Christian journey. At some point along the way, we do pick up a copy of the Bible and we do start reading that. And if you're going to do that thing as a Christian, if you're new to the faith, if you start reading your Bible, you may realize that some of the examples that you have been following don't really line up with what the Bible has to say. say. Wait a minute. This is what I thought you were supposed to do, and this is what the Bible says. And Sometimes you may see there's a disagreement there. And then other times, the examples that you're following, you might realize, okay, this this perfectly lines up with Scripture. And I can say one of the ways that I was blessed is that the examples that I was following concerning tithing did line up with what Scripture has to say about tithing, about saving, about giving, about how we think about our money, about how we value our currency, and how we think about spending and saving and giving away our money. So let's do a little bit of a tour here, okay? What the Bible has to say about money. Um, I can't cover everything because there's an Eagles game later on today. We just don't have that kind of time. But I'll see how much we can cover. Let's go. Let's go on a journey through the, a chronological journey through the Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about money. It all starts in the Book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. Some people take that book literally. I am one of those people. I'm one of those guys that think that there was literally an Adam and literally an Eve, and they had a couple of kids. Okay? Not every Christian believes that, but I do. That's a subject for another day. But I believe that. Okay? And so here you have Adam and Eve. They have two kids. Their names are Cain and Abel. And so you've got this situation, and there they are. This is before, just to give us some context historically, this is before the Ten Commandments. This is before God gave any kind of official written laws to the people. All right? This is before Chuck Heston went up on the mountain and got them from God. All right? It's before all that. This is the very first family ever, if we're going to take the Bible literally. And for some reason, Cain and Abel, they have this understanding that they are supposed to give something back to God. That they are supposed to make some kind of sacrifices. And so we assume, we're not sure, but we assume that God must have told them, you need to give something back to me. And so we see that from the very first family, we see this practice of giving what you might call first fruits. Giving the best back to God. You take what you have from God, you take the harvest, you take your crops, and you give the first of that, the best of that back to God. And so, we got props today. And so that's the first thing that we see is this principle of giving. Recycled props, right? This is like our farewell tour of the theater. I'm breaking out some old props, okay? Some old props. And so this is what we see first. Give first fruits. Now, it's interesting that the very first conflict that we see between human beings in Scripture is over this giving thing, right, and over jealousy, and over coveting. you got two brothers. One brother, Abel, does this, that brings the first fruits. And back then, this practice was all about just sacrificing to God, trusting in God. God, I'm giving this back to you. I'm acknowledging that this is from you. I'm going to give you the best of what I have, and I'm going to live off the rest. I'm going to give you the best. And live off the rest. Ooh, I just made that up. I think Andy Stanley would like that one, right? I'm gonna give you the best and live off the rest. It was all about trust. Because literally what you would give over to God just got burned up, didn't get used or anything. It was just, it was strictly about trust. And so Abel brought a sacrifice before God that was the best. God accepted it, God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. Cain, different story. Cain brought a different sacrifice before God. Abel brought fat portions. Cain brought some. There's a difference there. Fat portions versus some. And so Cain brings some to God, and God's like, okay. And so right away, Abel or Cain feels jealous of Abel because God favored his Abel sacrifice over Cain's. And God says to Cain, well, sin is knocking at your door. It desires to have you. you know, and basically it's this. If you don't want to feel jealous, then bring, bring what's best. Do what your brother did. Follow your brother's example. Bring the best before God. Bring the best before me. And so Cain basically has two options. He can start giving better to God, give him the best, or he can do something else. And he chooses something else. And Cain, instead of giving the best to God, kills Abel. It's the very first family. The very first family, and there's tension and there's conflict over this, and over jealousy, over coveting, over bitterness. Wow. So that's the dark side of all this. But we get this principle from the very beginning, this principle of giving first stuff back to God. No percentage assigned, just giving what's best and live off the rest. So we move forward in Scripture. We meet a man named Abram. Eventually, God renames him to Abraham. God calls Abraham, and essentially Abraham becomes the father of the whole nation of Israel. Okay? So this is laying the groundwork for what would become the nation of Israel. So he calls Abraham away from his loan, his home. He's going to give him a bunch of blessings. He's going to give him abundant wealth. He's going to set him up to be the father of a great nation. And so there's a sequence of events that takes place. Genesis chapter 14, uh, Abraham has this cousin named Lot. Abraham aligns. He's got all these people. He's got all this wealth. And he, he finds out that his nephew Lot is in trouble. And he goes and rescues Lot. He saves him. And there's a big battle. And, and Abraham and his people are victorious. They rescue Lot. And on their way back, they meet this king named Melchizedek. Have you heard of this guy, Melchizedek? He is both a king and a priest. Again, contextually, this is before Moses, before the Ten Commandments, before the law, before Israel. And Even during that time, you still had men who were priests to God. Before the priesthood was officially sanctioned and officially established, you still had priests to God. And so in this setting, we you meet Melchizedek, he is both a king and he is a priest. Some people believe, here's some fun stuff for you, some people believe that Melchizedek is a theophany. That's just a fun word anytime I get a chance to say it. Theophany, and that means an appearance of God in the flesh, in the, in, in the Scripture. You see a theophany, a physical appearance. Some people think that this guy is God. Some people think that Melchizedek is a Christophany, which is specifically an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. We can't really verify any of that, but anyway, we get this guy who's both a king and a priest, and he's the king of Salem or the king of peace, which is very interesting. A lot of parallels. We learn more. We learn a little bit, little bit about more about Melchizedek in Psalms and also in the Book of Hebrews. He's referenced. In fact, Christ is called a priest in the order of Melchizedek or king in the order of Melchizedek. And so Abraham meets this guy, and here's what we have: Genesis chapter fourteen. Here's how this exchange goes down. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high and blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your head. Hand. Deliver them into your head? Can you deliver enemies into your head? I don't know. Delivered enemies into your hand. And so this priest comes out and prays over Abram and just reminds him, hey, you were victorious because God gave you the victory. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. It's the first time you see the idea of a tenth established, 10%. First time you see it. It's not a commandment. It's what Abram does. Why does he give him a tenth? I don't know. Was it just that he felt, okay, this feels appropriate. I'm going to give this king, priest, this priest man, I'm going to give him this. of All my stuff, I'm going to give him a tenth. And so the tenth, the first time we see that idea of a tenth is there. Now we move forward in the book of Genesis. We're still in the first book. This is going to take a while. Still in the first book of the Bible. You move forward in the timeline and you read about Joseph. Not the Joseph who marries Mary and the, you know, the father, the adopted father. Not that guy. The first Joseph, they made a musical about him, the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Do you know that musical? Do you want me to do a number for you? I don't know anything. So we meet that Joseph. Long story, very long story short, this guy Joseph, this Israelite, he ends up working for Pharaoh, being very powerful. And here's how this whole thing breaks down. Pharaoh has some dreams. Anyway, Joseph realizes that there's about to be a famine in the land. They're going to have seven years of a lot, of bounty, of plenty, and all that. And then there's going to be a famine. And so Joseph says, here's what we need to do. We need to save we need to save up, Pharaoh. We need to take what we have during the times where things are good and save up because there's going to be a famine. And thank God that they did because not only Egypt but other nations looked to Egypt. Other people who were hungry during that time of famine went to Egypt and there was food there, all right? And so fortunately, you see the idea of saving being, being introduced there in Genesis, okay? And so we've got give, but we've got give, and then we have save there, okay? We move forward in the timeline. What else is going on? We move forward in the timeline. It's all these scripture references. So that's in Genesis 41 we meet Joseph and all that. We move forward in the timeline. Eventually, this idea of, of giving back a tithe is formalized. It's not just a good idea anymore. It becomes the law in the book of Leviticus. One of our favorite books to read together, the book of Leviticus, right? Is that true for anybody? It's, it really is an important book. Those of you who are doing the chronological study, we read this book back in the day, and you see all the specific laws that God gave the people that governed every single aspect of their lives. Every arena of life was governed by these laws. One of the things we have to understand about the nation of Israel, when they were formalized under Moses' leadership, they became a true theocracy, a true Church-state hybrid where God gave them all of their laws. It wasn't just their moral laws. It was all of their laws. God gives them their laws. We read about them in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30 through 32 it says this, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Let me continue, then we'll go back. 31, whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. And so specifically, what's being said here is, okay, you need, for those of you who are working the land, the fruit of the land, or your grain, you need to give a tenth of it back to God because specifically, it belongs to God. So the way that it's being phrased here really makes sense. As we move forward in the Old Testament, we'll see that this, this comes into play a little bit later on. This idea that this, it's not yours. A tenth already belongs to God, so give it back to Him, is essentially the idea there. It does say whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. That basically was saying is if you don't want to give that tenth of your grain and your fruit to God, you've got an option. You can keep it and then give the monetary value of that crop to God plus 5%. That's how that works. You want to keep your stuff? Okay, keep your stuff. And instead, give the monetary value plus that 5% on top of it. Verse 32 every tithe of the herd and flock. So not just grain and fruit, but also the animals. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. That term holy means separate, set apart for a holy purpose. It belongs to God. That was an important way to think about things. It's not mine. It's already God's. I'm just giving it back to him. We move forward in the Old Testament. We meet a man named Solomon. Solomon was very wise. Solomon oversees this compiling of the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs himself. Again, the Proverbs cover all the practical details of life and how to make wise decisions in all the different arenas of life. Talks about money. Talks about working hard. Talks about being diligent. And so again, we see in Solomon's writing in the book of Proverbs this idea of saving, saving, saving. And it's important to note that when we read about saving in the Old Testament, it's the idea of save, for ne- save now because you might need it later on. Save now because you might need it later on to live, right? Because there might be a time coming where you don't have enough to live. You don't have enough to eat. You don't have enough to take care of yourself. And so in those times, whew, thank goodness you have something in here in the save category. And so we move forward. We keep moving forward in the timeline. A lot of crazy stuff happens to the nation of Israel. They're divided. They're conquered. They're taken away. They go back home. A whole bunch of history takes place. We get to the time of the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, Malachi is talking to the Israelites. They had been through so much. They had had their own kingdom. They had that kingdom stolen from, us, for, stolen from them. They were allowed to return back home. But things had changed. And they were, So they were still supposed to be doing this tithe thing. They were still supposed to be worshiping God. They were still supposed to be following the laws of Moses that Moses had commanded them, the laws that came from God. But a lot of them just weren't, or their hearts weren't in it, and they just weren't doing this. And so Malachi speaks to this. He relays to the people the words of God. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. In other words, once upon a time, Israel, I gave you this commandment to give first. I made it official in the law. You've read it in Leviticus. You've heard it. It's to give me a tenth. I don't change. I gave you that law. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. I've been telling you how to live I've been telling you how to conduct your relationships. I've been telling you how to worship me. I've been telling you how to handle your money from the beginning. And you've always turned away from me. Return to me, and I will return to you. That might be the theme of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Not just when it comes to money or giving. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord God Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return Better question in verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you, God? And so here's this introduction of this idea. This is God saying through the prophet Malachi, he's like, you are robbing from me. And the people's response is, how can we rob from God? Here's the answer. In tithes and offerings, you were under a curse, your whole nation, because you were robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And so, again, we go back to this concept that we learned about earlier, this way of thinking that the tenth, it already belongs to God. And if you don't give it back to God, if you take something that doesn't belong to you, what is that called? That's robbing, robbing from God. Just bring it back, to bring the full tithe, because what you had back in those days is you had some people were saying, no, we're doing the tithe thing, but no one's checking this, right? Nobody really knows, so we'll just call this, this is 10%. Is this 10%? People say this is 10%. They're just lying. No, don't do that. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, the whole thing, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. And so this is really important. This is, this is a, a word from God that applies to both individuals and the community, you're not doing this so a curse is on you as an individual, as a family, but also as a nation. You need to do this for yourself and also for the benefit of the rest of you, of the rest of your community. Test me in this. Is this the only time that God says that? Put me to, you're not allowed to test God. God's like, uh, you can in this. Test me in this. You go ahead. Put me to the test. Chall- I dare you to do this and see if I don't come through. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That's a big claim, God. You ready to back that up? Can we trust that promise? Go ahead. I dare you to do it. I so dare you to do it. I will bust open the floodgates, and there will be so much stinking blessing. It will be coming out of your noses. You won't have enough room. You won't know what to do with it. I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. I will prevent, furthermore, I will prevent pests from this. This is the blessing, part of the blessing. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your fields will not drop before the fruit is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the thing. There is this thing out there now uh, that's often referred to as the prosperity gospel. Have you heard of this, the prosperity gospel? And it's this teaching, and it is, it is a lie. Okay, here's the teaching. The teaching is if you give a certain amount of money to God, then you're going to get rich. You give money to God, you're going to be very wealthy. That's not the case necessarily, okay? When God says that he's going, if you, okay, you trust me in this, you trust you give me that full tithe, that first fruit, that full tithe, I'm going to bless you, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to bless you financially, I mean, it's not excluded. It's an option. But that's not necessarily how that blessing is going to manifest. We just need to be aware of that because there have been some unscrupulous teachings, which is another word I like to use. There have been some unscrupulous teachings which lead people to believe, okay, I'm going to put something in the offering plate, and then I'm going to get blessed. You've seen it. You've seen the preachers on TV. Send me $20, and I'll send you this prayer cloth, and then you'll get rich. Send me $15, bucks, i will send you a little bit of oil, and you'll be healed. And all your bills will be paid off. You've seen this. It's baloney. All right. That's the polite church word for it. Okay. It's, it's just not it's not the case. Okay. And so that's not that's not what God is promising when he talks about this blessing of the floodgates being opened, it does not necessarily mean anything financial. It could, but not necessarily. And so that is the old testament, and that's what the old testament has to say about, about money to some degree. But then something changes. Something dramatic shifts in our Bibles as we continue reading. Jesus enters into the scene. So far, everything we've looked at has been part of what you call the old covenant, the old law, the old agreement between God and people, between God and the nation of Israel. Then Jesus comes along and starts the new covenant, a new deal, a new arrangement between God and not just Israel, but God and all people we're told in the Old Covenant that there will be a New Covenant. In fact, Jeremiah writes about it. It says, okay, once upon a time we had the laws written in stone, and literally they did. It says there's going to be a New Covenant. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant is written on our hearts. It's a new thing that Jesus starts. When Jesus enters into the earth and starts the New Covenant, so much of that Old Covenant becomes void. They no longer, we no longer offer animal sacrifices before God. You know why we don't do that? Because we don't live in the Old Covenant. God does not require us to do that anymore and so here's the reality if you've been uncomfortable about me talking about the tithe so far here's what you need to know you can write this down if you want to it's not required should we close in prayer there do you like that should we it's not a requirement for well if you're going to be a christian you have to do this says who who says that a christian has to do this it's not required let me clarify it's not required for your salvation it's not required for your salvation. How, how is a person saved? It's not by their tithe. It's not by their attendance in worship. It's not by their good deeds. It's not by, I don't know, how often they recycle or how good-looking they are. It's not, it's not any of that stuff. How many times they read the Bible, how many prayers they say. No, that's not how a person is saved. There's only one way to be saved, and it's through accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's it. So the tithe is not a requirement for salvation. Neither is showing up here on a Sunday morning. You're not required to attend a worship service in order to be saved. Watch, next week nobody's going to be here. Wait, I I shouldn't have said that. It's not a requirement. How many of you say prayers every day? How many of you read your Bible every day? None of these things are requirements. Why do you do them? Why do you do this stuff that you don't have to do? Because you found it valuable or beneficial in some way. That's why we do these things. By the way, that's a classic reason that Christians give for why we don't do stuff. It's like, well, it's not required for my salvation. We might not articulate it that way, but it's not going to make me any more saved, so why would I do this stuff, right? But you just need to know when it comes to the tithe, it's not required for your salvation. And yet some people, some Christians, have decided that they want to observe. They're going to opt in. I know this is an optional discipline, but I'm going to opt in. Some have decided to do just that. Now, you could say, Jesus changes the percentage. I want to read you a couple things that Jesus has to say, okay? He changes the percentage from 10 to something else. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all. Oh, you, you, you got you like Bible people in here? What, do you read the Bible and study it? Good for you. That's great. I love the gourd. The gourd? Love the gourd. As the Scripture says, bring in the pumpkin. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. So forget about money. We're talking about all everything you have. I think that's 100%. Not some all. Matthew 16:24 then Jesus said this is a tough one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, in modern-day Christianity, we have this idea of a cross. You know, the symbolism of a cross, and a cross is like—it's your burden, right? It's a burden that you carry. That's it. No. When Jesus spoke these words, the cross wasn't a symbol of anything. It was something literal, and it meant death. You need to give up your life deny yourself whatever your plans are, whatever you want to do with your money, whatever you want to do with your life, whatever you were thinking about retirement, whatever you're thinking about in the here and now, give it all up if you want to be my disciple. Jesus doesn't say if you want to get saved. He says if you want to be my disciple, that's different. This is beyond salvation. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, pick up your cross, die to self, and follow me 100%. 10 doesn't sound so bad now, does it? Can we go back to the 10th thing? 100 percent. This is different. So Jesus establishes this new percentage, It's 100 percent. So I've got my fun props here. We've got the, the jars that I've put out before. Now so far, what we've seen here, I lifted this idea from Andy Stanley. Maybe you've heard of him. He's this preacher, writer guy. I really appreciate what he's done over the years and what he's contributed. And so he's put it out there this way. This is how we should think about giving. this is how we should prioritize things. is give comes first, then save. Then live, okay, that's what Andy Stanley says, and so I have added one to that, and it doesn't end with a V-E. Mine is non-essentials, okay? So here's the other one. And the reason that I put this one out here is because sometimes we Americans, we get confused about the difference between living and spending money on stuff that we don't need, all right? And so you can be kind of you know strict about that. Okay, what exactly is an essential? What's a non-essential? Like, what are we putting here? There's vacation going here, but I don't know. I feel like I really I really need a vacation, so that's more of an essential thing. Like we could play those games, and you can decide that for yourself. And that's not for me to, to weigh in on. You got to figure that out with you know with God. But we have these categories: give, save, live, and then non-essentials. And here's the thinking is that we should give first to take that attitude. There are people beyond that I have what I have because of God, so I'm going to give back first, then save if you're able to. Now, here's what so many people have said, okay? The 10% goes to God, and then another 10% to save. That's not in Scripture, by the way. That's just an idea. Have you ever heard that? Did somebody tell you that growing up? If you have the money, put 10% away. Put it in savings. You never know. You never know. It's not Scripture. It's just a good idea, all right, (laughs) to be able to save. There are some times in life Well, this just isn't an option, is it? It's like, uh, I got nothing to save. But here's an idea. If you can afford it, give first, then save, then live. (laughs) Live is pay your bills, buy your clothing, provide shelter for yourself and your family, stuff like that. All right. And then in our culture, and this this doesn't exist in Kenya, this doesn't exist in other places where we've been, but here this seems to be be a thing. So give, save, save. Live non-essentials. The save thing, though, this is a tricky one. This is one that we need to talk about a little bit before we end today. Okay. So without further delay, why don't we take a look at that note sheet that's in your bulletin. You've got your pens, you've got your note sheet, you've got your fill-in-the-blank sheet. Looking at eight reasons, the top ten eight reasons why Christians don't tithe. I don't know. That was Casey Kasem. Does anybody know who Casey Kasem is? I assumed I could do an impression. I never tried it. should have tried that at home. All right. Eight reasons why Christians don't tithe. Number one, here we go, and let's clarify this. This isn't reasons why people don't tithe. This is people who have chosen to accept Jesus as their Savior and have chosen to follow him. Say, I want to live into this discipleship thing. I want to live into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here are the reasons why people like that choose not to tithe. Here's one. Number one, are you trying to guess? Are you trying to guess along the way? All right, here we go. Number one, they don't know about tithing. It's just that simple. You grow up in a situation where nobody sets that example for you, where you haven't read about it in Scripture, and nobody's explained it to you. Okay, well, I didn't know about it. Right. Other story uh, last month, there is a pastor who works in, um, he's planted a church in uh, the Lancaster area, and he is really reaching out to the Amish community, which is kind of wild because we think of the Amish as being so, I don't know, like, they're so Amish. They're so religious and devout and all this stuff, but there's a lot of room in that community for people to find Jesus. There's a lot of people who don't know Jesus as their Savior. And so this guy is at a church just reaching out to these people. And so there was an Amish man and so this pastor personally reached out to him and, and this man accepted Christ as his Savior and so he's going along and he's looking to the example of other people. And so one, one Sunday he learns about this tithing thing and he walks up to his pastor ever, afterwards and says, I never heard about this. And the following week he comes in with a check for thousands, thousands and thousands of dollars. And the next week another check for thousands and thousands. And he just starts giving back. I'm giving the tenth back. I didn't know about it. And that's the reason why some people don't do it. They just don't no, I didn't know. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know there was a blessing attached to that. And that's the thing you can read what it has to say in Malachi, and here's what we need to know. The, the, the law, the command, you must tithe, that's void. But the promise of blessing remains. It's optional, but the promise of blessing remains. So this man said, okay, I didn't know about it, now I do. So that's one reason why Christians don't tithe. They don't know. Here's one, number two. This is my favorite one. I think this is the best one of all the reasons. Reasons why Christians don't tithe. They don't trust their local church. That's the best reason why a Christian shouldn't tithe, right? There's a thing that we say every week. If you're new to Hope, maybe you've heard us us say it today. When that offering plate gets passed around, don't feel obligated to place anything in it. You don't know us. You don't know us yet. You don't know what we're doing with your money. If you don't trust, don't, don't put it in, you know? When I'm a visitor to other churches and it happens, I go in there on Sunday morning, I don't know who these people are, and that offering plate gets passed around. I'm just fascinated by my bulletin when that plate goes, oh, look at this bulletin. Look at that font. Woo! <laughs> past, I'm, not, I'm not putting anything in there because that might be a lousy investment. What do I know? You don't know. Goodness gracious, if this is your first Sunday or second, if you feel new, and by the way, there's no time for, we don't put, you're a visitor for as long as you think you are, right? Until so you feel comfortable moving beyond that saying, you know what, no, I'm a part of this, I'm a member. That's different to be a member than to be a visitor or a guest. Our guests, we say no, don't put it, you don't have to put anything, you don't know who we are yet. Wait until you learn about us, see what we're doing with what gets put in there before putting anything in there yourself. That's a great reason not to give, not to tie this. I don't trust my local church. It's also a pretty clear indication that some kind of change needs to take place. Right? Listen, there are plenty of lousy reasons to leave a church, and there are plenty of lousy reasons to stay at one. <laughs> okay? And so, if you're at a church and you don't trust what they're doing, you need to, there is a change that needs to take place. Maybe you just need to give it more time to trust them or ask some questions so you can grow in your trust. Or maybe you need to take your tithe and yourself somewhere else, right? And so, that's another, that's, that's my favorite reason of the eight here. A valid reason. Don't trust the local church. Number three, mentioned this already. It's not required for salvation. It's very simple, it's an optional thing. And so plenty of Christians opt out. I don't need to do it to be saved, and so I'm, I'm opting out. And again, that's the reason why Christians don't do a lot of things. It's not required for my salvation, I'm opting out. Even if there's a benefit in it, I don't have to read my Bible, then I'm opting out. I don't have to show up in worship, then I'm opting out. I don't have to be part of a community to be saved, well then I'm opting out. What about beyond salvation? <laughs> what about living life in the here and now? And so that's the reason it's not required for salvation. Number four, oh boy. They think the church doesn't Need it. Right? Years ago I met a missionary, missionary in Chani, who served there for about 10 years. He came back, was at a Sunday school class and he gave a talk about what he experienced. And somebody in the class asked the question, How are you doing with your funding? How are you doing with your funding? Because missionaries they need to raise all this support to be able to do what they do. And he he answered, he said this. He's like, you know what? My umbrella mission organization, they kind of encourage us to keep that vague. Because if people want to give, they want to receive. But he said, but you know what? I have to tell you, praise God, I'm at 100%. I am fully funded for the next year. If you want to give to next year, great. But I'm fully funded for this year. I thought, that's really admirable. Because he could go, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so he left people with a choice. So there's some people in that room who thought about giving. Well, he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. But he sure did need it next year. Maybe the year after that, Right? Here's something that we do as a church. Quarterly, we put the numbers in the bulletin of what our weekly need is to meet our budget and what our weekly average giving is. And for as long as we've been doing that, we've always had more than we need. Praise God. Like, really, praise God. Isn't that amazing that we always have more than what we need? Praise God. And every time we put $200 more, this year, We're about $200 received more. Okay, how do I phrase this? $200 above our weekly need. Praise God. And every time we put those numbers in the bulletin, I know. I know. We're just giving our reasons for people not to give. Well, I don't need it. I got more than enough. Don't be so sure, is all I say. Don't be so sure. Have I mentioned we're, we're about to become owners of a property over there? Has that come up yet? That's come up. Okay, I thought I mentioned that. Because there's been more than we need for several years, when it comes time to fundraise for this rebuilding project, we don't have to start at zero. There's money there to work with, right? So you might think your local church doesn't need it. You're a member of a local church. Maybe you're, oh, I don't, eh, don't, be so, don't be so sure. But that's the reason. People think, well, oh, they don't need it. Number five, they volunteer instead of tithing. This is the third church that I've worked for. And every church that I've been a part of, I've encountered the same attitude among certain Christians. They say, well, I'm not going to tithe. In fact, I'm not going to give anything. I'm going to volunteer instead. Okay, all right. That's fine. That's fine, I guess. Matthew twenty three twenty three. So this is Jesus. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth. You tithe. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law: justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so Jesus talked to a group of religious guys. Said, "Great, you tithe. Good for you. But what about taking care of people? What about justice? What about the poor among you?" And so essentially, what he's saying is, you need you need both. You can't just tithe and volunteer. You can't just volunteer. And, I mean, you can. It's optional. What about, what about both? And So here's the thing. Now, now I try, guys. I try to be polite and sensitive to people in conversations. It's not exactly my strong. Oh, Jesus is working on me, okay, right? But if someone were to come up to me and say, well, listen, I'm not giving. I'm not tithing because I volunteer. Instead, here's what I could do. I'm not going to do it because I'm too polite. Here's what I could do, right? I could provide that person with a list of names. Here are the people in the church that are busier than you. That volunteer more than you, and that tithe. I've got a list. I've got it in my back pocket, ready to go. Right. So that's just it. So that's just that's just the reality. Is some people choose? I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to give my time. I got a full time schedule. I got a family to take care of. But I'm going to volunteer and I'm going to give because all of these things are required if you're thinking about it as the hundred percent that Jesus encourages us to give. Hundred percent. Number six. Here we go. Eight reasons why Christians don't tithe. Number six, they used to. They used to tithe, but paused for a season and never resumed. Hit the pause button. Boop. Why do people hit the pause button? There's a couple different reasons. One reason is, okay, oh, hang on. Just, just got a cut in my salary. Oh, boy. Pause. Just had my hours cut. Pause. Let me just pause this for now. We're not making as much as we used to. Let's pause and do this, and then when we get back on my feet, well, then we'll pick up again. Okay, well, what happens is sometimes that, that pause button never gets unclicked. just never resumes. So that's a reason why people, they used to, why Christians don't tie, they used to, they stopped. Here's another reason why people pause. Oh, just made a big purchase. Let me pause. I just made a big purchase. Let me pay this off. And then I'll pick it back up again, right? Just bought a new house or new car, new apartment, down payment. Pause. I believe it's a good idea. I trust my local church and all that. Let me just pause. Then I'll pick it up later. But what happens? Okay, you pay off the first, you pay off the house, but then there's another car bill, and then there's something else, and you just never end up clicking unpause, okay? And so that's a reason, one reason why Christians don't tithe. Number seven, this is a tough one. They think they're too poor to tithe. That's, that's kind of a rude way to phrase it. Probably could have said it better, but I was just trying to come up with a short statement. They think they're too poor, okay? In other words, I can't afford it. I can't afford it, all right? When somebody thinks that way or somebody says that, that's either true or it isn't. Okay, let's talk about if it's true. If a person literally does not have enough to fill this live jar, that's an issue, <laughs> okay? That's real. If you literally do not have, if a person has enough for here and enough for here but says I can't afford it, well, that's not exactly true, is it, right? Let me talk to the people in this room. If, you, if you're in this situation, if you don't have enough for this jar, goodness gracious, that's, the, that's part of the beauty of being a part of a church is let us help you. Let us help you. Talk to me after the service. Email me. My information is in the bulletin. Let us know how we can help you. I mentioned this last week. We have in our budget room a designated area to help people in our congregation, in our community that are in financial distress. If this is the case, that you literally can't pay these bills and take care of you, let us know. But then there's the other thing where this isn't, you know, there's the reality and then there's just the perception of, well, I can't afford it. Here's what you need to Remember? It's optional, all right? You don't have to think that way. You don't have to, you just say, well, I'm choosing, just say, oh, I'm opting out. It's not a matter of, I can afford this, and I can afford this. Sometimes I can afford this, but I'm just choosing not, just opt out. You don't have to convince yourself that you're too poor. What's the last one, number eight? You're too, anybody, anybody, have it? They think they're too rich, yeah, that's it. Too rich to type, I got too much. Listen, I just have too much. It's not fair. It's not fair, If I, my 10th is more than that person, I mean, if I gave, if I gave 1%, that's more than that guy's 10%. How is that fair? I don't know. I don't know. What's fair got to do with that? I don't know. I I mean, I get it. The logic adds up, right? This past Tuesday, we had our board meeting. We went over our budget. And um, here would be a fun, what if we just took our budget for the year, we said, all right, let's just divide it up over all of our members, and we'll just send them a bill. Let's just do that. (laughs) Right? Like, I need a new church then, you know, (laughs) right? That's not going to work. But here's the wisdom and the beauty of God's way get enough people to do this tithe thing. You don't have to do that. There's always going to be enough. As long as you have a critical number of tithers, that budget is always going to be met, and it has to date. Praise God. That's how it works. And so there's that. Eight reasons why. Should we list some why they do? I have less. I feel like I should have at least equal, but I have less reasons why some Christians do tithe. Number one, this will be quicker. Number one, they want to be blessed. Well, that's selfish. They want to be blessed. All that business in Malachi, all that business in the Old Testament, being, you know, trusting in God, giving him first, and then receiving a blessing in return. They want that. Great. So there's a strictly selfish component to that, but there's also an altruistic component as well. The individual is blessed, but the community is also blessed. The Christian that gives a tenth is blessed, but also the church community is blessed. The desire to be blessed. Number two, they trust God with their finances. They trust him. Now, is that to say that the people that, that don't tithe, the Christians that don't tithe, that they don't trust God with their I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying here are reasons why Christians do. They trust. They're at a place where they trust God with their finances. It's been said that that is the last thing that we Christians surrender over to God. It's our wallets. It's the last thing. We give Christ control over certain parts of our lives, and the money is the last thing to go. Well, certain Christians have reached a point where they trust God with their finances. Number three, they trust their local church. They feel confident. When I put my tithe in there, I know it's staying here. It's, it's staying in this community. It's staying in this church. It's going to bless this church. It's going to bless this community. It's not going to some weird over umbrella organization that I don't know about. It's going here. I trust my local church. Number four, they have been blessed by their local church. Okay? Blessed is that very Christian word. What I mean by that is they've experienced some kind of personal benefit. I've seen this work, right? How many people have stood up on this stage and been baptized? Wow. You didn't know Christ as your Savior, and now you do. I've been blessed, right? And the reason that some of you were baptized up on this stage is because people outside of this church invested in this church. (laughs) You've been blessed by it. Once you're blessed, you want to give back. Last one. See, this was quicker. Last one. They have a desire. They desire to make a financial investment in the salvation of others. A fine really? <laughs> I'll take I'll take a laugh anytime I can get one. I'll tell be honest. They desire to make a financial investment in the salvation of all you cannot hear me. You cannot make a financial investment in your own salvation. You can't. Right? Giving money. Oh, now I'm extra saved because I put a tempt in. No, it doesn't work that way. But you can invest. In your local church, you can invest in somebody else's salvation. Like I said, before this church started, a bunch of people whose names you don't know from our old church, from Bethlehem Church, put money into this, financially invested in this, so that some of you in this room could receive salvation. And some of you in this room have received salvation in Jesus Christ through this church because of somebody else's financial investment. And there are Christians that want to make that financial investment in others' lives. Okay, Whew, that's, that was fun. So now what? Here's a little demonstration, okay, of how this whole thing works. I just so happen to have $10 here, okay? So let's say it's payday, and I got my $10. And what is, what is a tenth of ten? Does anybody know? I'm not, great, I'm not great at math. Okay, great. So that's one. So that will go here. First off, let's see this. If you were to do this tie thing, look at this. Look at how much is left. One little dollar. Look how much is left, okay? Now, if you were able... So, okay, I'm looking at what living, okay, that's, that's there. I think I can do this. I think I can go ahead and do a tenth, uh, maybe just a tenth, because I got bills to pay, all right? And so you pay your bills, and then you might realize, my goodness gracious, I made this my first priority. I even had a little bit to save. I was able to pay my bills. Look at this. Look what I have. I could put this over here. I could put, well, oh, you know what? I could put it, you do what you want. Do what you want with that, right? That's how that works, okay? But there is. There is a big asterisk on this one, okay? It's what are we doing with this? Look at the scripture passage. It's in your bulletin. It's a story that Jesus tells about a man had a big harvest, big crop. He's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build up a big storehouse, and I'm going to put all this away so that I don't have to work. I can live. I can take it easy. I can do all sorts of stuff in this category for the rest of my days. That's where he's investing, to put his savings into this category, the non-essentials. And what, is, what happens to him? God says, you fool. What, you fool. You could have used that. Now you're, now you're dead. What are you going to do with it now? You could, have used, you could have invested that in something else. But instead, you invested it in self-indulgent stuff. You need to be rich toward God. And that's what Jesus says. He's, this is how he'll deal with people who are not rich. You're being rich towards this category, but not rich toward God. And so here's the thing about the save category is why are we saving? We're saving for the day that, oh, my goodness, I can't afford to live, so I'm going to put, I'm going to get rid of this one. If you can't afford to live, then nothing goes in this category, right? All right, I'll put this in here. Saving for the day where you might not have enough and need to put it in here, or you're saving for the day that God calls you to give something bigger over here. In other words, as long as you give God access to what's in here, you're golden. As long as you give God access to your savings, you're okay. give, him, give Christ the pin code or whatever it is, give him the account number. As long as God has access to this, you're okay. If all of this is just going into a future filled with you know, wild living, like the prodigal son, do you remember that story, Luke 15, there's a prodigal son? That prodigal son, he was living okay until he had a bunch of money and then he invested it in all kinds of sin, right? If you're saving up for sin, that's no good. <laughs> but if you're saving up so that you can live or if, as long as you give God access to that you're okay. So here's what I want you to think about. How can, here's the last question, last blanks to fill in. How can I become richer? Let's just stop there. How can I become richer? How can I become richer toward God? What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? How can I become richer toward God? As I mentioned, we did go over our budget at our our meeting on Tuesday night, what our budget looks like for 2020, and I've got some great news. Praise God. When we're looking at our expenses, we're about to move into this building, and we got to heat it and pay for electricity and all this stuff. Here's what's up. We only need about $200 over what we already have per week. I know, right? Isn't that awesome? That's, that's all we need. And let me give you a little bit more good news. i got two pieces of good news, all right? Here, here's what's wonderful. We've taken steps this big in the past, and God has all... Are you kidding me? We're about to move into a property. We have 24-7 access to this place. We've actually taken bigger financial steps between years in the past. Isn't that great? Let me give you some more good news. If we we take our current tithers and if we add to that number the people who are in this room right now, who consider themselves members, the people in this room right now who have been challenged by God to do this, to engage in this discipline, if we have a critical number of people that obey and say yes, you add that to our current tithers, and then you take another group of people, all the people that used to tithe, and say, well, they don't need it. I'm going to pause. They don't need it. You add them back in. Guess what? More. more. Before adding a single other member, we have more than enough money in this room to pay all of our bills. Praise God. What does it look like in your life to be richer toward God? Some of you in this room, God may be speaking to some of you saying, this is a discipline that you need to engage in. Not Everybody. Maybe not you, but maybe the person sitting next to you. I don't know. This is where God, this is where the Holy Spirit needs to do the preaching, right? Are you trying to decide which one it is, right? Let the Holy, I don't need to preach anymore. Let the Holy Spirit do the preaching. But what does it look like in your life to be richer toward God? Here's the reality. When we make giving back to God our first priority, we will always have enough. This is this is true. When we make giving back to God our first priority, we will always have enough. We might not have as much as we want, but we will always have enough. As a family, you make giving back to God your first priority, you will always have enough as a church we collectively make that tithing thing our first priority, we will always have enough to pay for the ministries that we need to do in this community. There will always be enough. And if we can put God to the test in this, and if we believe what Malachi has to say, there will be more than enough. God will bust open those gates and flood us with so many blessings that we don't know what to do with. What does it look like for us as a church to be richer toward God? Let's pray on that. Father God, we thank you for what you have given to us as a church. We thank you that there has always been enough to do the ministry you have called us to do. We thank you that beyond just meeting our basic needs, you have blessed us beyond what we need. Father God, we thank you for the families in this room. And here's the thing, all of us, all of us in this room, we've experienced times of trial financially. And all of us in this room have experienced times where we have more than we need. But whatever we have, God, however much or however little, we thank you for it. And we acknowledge that without you, we would not have it. Thank you, God, for the many ways that you have blessed us. Yes, blessed us financially, but more important, blessed us with relationships, blessed us with love, and Jesus Christ, thank you for being our Savior. Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for offering the gift of eternal life to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.